Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You can have a seat. Today we are going to start a new series in the book of Genesis, and um, you know, rather than, uh, we're going to do an overview of the entire book today, so rather than, you know, reading all 50 chapters for the scripture reading, we decided to just do Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which I think what we'll find is, is a turning point verse in the entire book of Genesis, and possibly, um, if you can have some verses that are more important than others, possibly one of the more important verses in the entire story of the Bible. So we're going to break up Genesis over probably, well, I can't remember, over the next couple of years, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Buckle up! Um, We're going to break it up into three parts. And so we'll preach uh, through the first about 11 chapters here from now until Valentine's Day, and then we'll take a break. We'll we'll take a break for Christmas and and such and and like that. But um, we prefer here at Proclaim to preach through books of the Bible. And and one of the main reasons why we prefer to do that is so that as you're going along, um, you are getting or understanding the biblical context, the context of the passage we're preaching uh, within the greater context of the, the chapters and the verses surrounding it, the books surrounding it, and, and of course the Bible as a whole then, rather than grabbing just a couple of verses and not really taking the time to look at the setting that those verses are in. And so as we begin uh, this series in the book of Genesis, I want to give kind of an overall context for the book and how uh, the, what the, entire, the story of the entire book what it is, because I think that when we get an idea of what is going on in the whole, then when we look at each part, how that part fits makes a lot more sense, if that makes sense. And as we go along, we're also going to do something interesting. We're going to, because Genesis introduces so many themes that then run through all of scripture, we're actually going to take some time, uh, as we go along and stop and, and look at some of those themes and have individual sermons uh, on, on those themes and get an understanding of what that is throughout, throughout Scripture. So uh, it should be interesting. It should be fun. Hopefully um, you guys enjoy it. And I would encourage you, if you haven't ever or if you haven't in a while, to sit down, maybe this week even, and read through the book of Genesis. Read through all 50 chapters. I'm going to kind of brush over a lot of the the peaks of it today, 
But I think it would be helpful as we kind of go through the book of Genesis, and especially if you're like, hey, and I probably should read my Bible a little bit more. I haven't been so much. Well, here's a great place to start. Um, read through the book of Genesis this week and, and get an idea of what, what the whole story is. So let me pray, and we will look at Genesis. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather this morning and for the wonderful weather. Thank you for your creation and for creating us. You did not need us, God, um, but you love us. You display your glory uh, in creation and, and to us. And uh, you, just, you chose to relate to us, to make us in your image. What a wonderful privilege that is. God, I pray that as we look through this book that we will see uh, both your sovereignty over all things, as well as uh, your loving kindness to us in, in being faithful and keeping your promises. We thank you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So as we get, uh, as we look at Genesis, try to get an idea of what the entire context of the book is, I want to start by giving a little bit of a, the historical context in which Genesis was written. It goes without saying that the book of Genesis was not written into the world we live in today, right? While there are a lot of differences between that time period and our time period, there are also a lot of similarities. Let me explain. You see, this, the secular uh, atheistic environment that we really find ourselves in predominantly in our, in our culture has become, you know, very commonplace, and yet to the original audience that would have been reading Genesis and to those who had been reading Genesis for the majority of the history of the world, that, those ideas, that context would have been completely foreign to them. They would never have thought in those terms. The original audience for the book of Genesis lived in a world surrounded by polytheistic people or people who believed in multiple gods, that, that lots of gods existed. And these gods that they believed in and that they worshipped, they were gods that made mistakes. They were gods that acted on whims. They were gods that had immense power, but finite power. They were often gods who were in competition with one another. And man, in their worldview and in, in the way that they understood things, man was an afterthought to the gods. And so humanity sought to appease the gods or just to manage to, uh, to deal with the being the collateral damage of the competition of these gods. And despite the deck being stacked against us, mankind had progressed. Mankind was improving. That was the view of the, the world around which Genesis was written. And in that way, while the ancient and the modern world hold very different views on the existence of God, they hold actually very similar views on humanity. Let me explain. Humans in the view of many today, are an afterthought. Rather than being a byproduct of some sort of weird divine reproduction or divine conflict, now we are the chance products of natural processes. 
And we are mostly good. We are able to improve on our own. That's the view of today, just like it was the view then. And our problems today, we often see our problems being rooted primarily in the systems we have been born into. Whether that be unjust systems built by people who are hungry for power or as in ancient times, unjust systems by gods who are hungry for power. And so there are a lot of similarities. And we're told today, as would have been the mindset then, that that we should have this sort of optimism about life and about humanity and about the world. Like, uh, it's kind of capsulized in this phrase, hey, change the world. Go and change the world. You can change the world. We're told that from an early age. You can be whatever you want to be. Things like that. But as you get older, we get slammed into the reality of the world we live in, right? And the reality of ourselves, oftentimes. For some, this happens early. For some, this happens later. But it happens to all of us. We get lied to, we get cheated, we get abandoned, we get abused. Someone takes advantage of us, someone lets us down, or worse yet, we are the ones who lie and cheat and abuse and abandon and let others down. We realize that rather than changing the world for the better, rather than being you know, whatever we wanna be, we end up being what we wish we weren't. Rather than changing the world for the better, we find that we've actually changed the world for, for worse. And oftentimes our response then is to become cynical about the world, right? I know that's been my response at times. To close up, to build walls, to distrust everyone, even ourselves, to not let anyone in. We begin to think, if I never hope for anything, then I can't be let down. But Genesis, friends, and this is what I love about Genesis, Genesis tells a different story. It tells a different story. It says that there's one all-powerful, all-knowing, good God who has very specific and unchanging through the millennia purposes. That humans are not an afterthought. They're not a chance uh, byproduct, but they are central that God has chosen, not because he needs to, but because he wants to. He's chosen humans to be central to his plan and his purposes. Yet because of sin, mankind at its core, at our core, is disobedient and is bound to get worse and worse without God inserting himself into history's story, into our story. As one commentator wrote, Genesis is thus a fundamental challenge to the ideologies of civilized men and women, past and present, who like to suppose that their own efforts will ultimately suffice to save them. The New City Catechism question 
for this morning is absolutely perfect for the book of Genesis. What will save you? Your effort or something else? No. Only God. Only Jesus Christ. Genesis intends to make one important truth clear. And, and, and this is the book in a sentence. This is 50 chapters narrowed down to four words. It took us some time to narrow it down to four words. But I got there. God keeps his promises. That's the book of Genesis. God keeps his promises. And as you read through it, and as we preach through it, you will see over and over and over again, God is faithful. He is sovereign. He is able, and he is good, and he will keep his promises. That truth is the only hope for creation, is the only hope for humanity, and Genesis sets the stage for the gospel story. It sets the stage for Christ coming years later and fulfilling those words from Genesis chapter 12, one through three, the blessing of all nations. Genesis tells us that we shouldn't trust in humanity on its own, but we also don't have to live without hope in the world. Even in the midst of evil people and terrible problems, not because we can't, not because we can do something, but because God will do it. And so let's look kind of at a, I just got back from Colorado, right? So got to the, climbed up the mountain, got to the overlook, saw all of the Sangre de Cristo mountains all laid out in front of us, all the little peaks. So we're going to do all the little peaks of Genesis this morning. All right. So we're going to do. So starting in chapter one, Genesis as a book is intentionally divided into 10 parts, really 11 parts, but 10 parts by a phrase that is typically translated in your Bibles, these are the generations of. And it's this exact same Hebrew phrase, and you see it 10 times, except, except the book opens in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, with a sort of prologue that does not begin with that phrase. It's, a, it's an introduction to the book of Genesis. And it serves to introduce to us the main character of Genesis, which, by the way, is not us. If you didn't know, we are not the main character of the Bible. And we're not the main character of Genesis. The main character is this sovereign, promise-keeping, creator God. And, he, and it helps us to begin to understand who he is, by showing us what this God does. And this God creates everything and he creates it good. And man made in his image is not only the pinnacle of that creation, but is key, as I said, to his plans and purposes in that creation. And the story of Genesis really follows two major movements as we go through these 10 sections. The first movement is from the beginning of chapter two, chapter two, verse four, through 11 verse 26, and it is the ancient history of the world. Over 20 generations in just those 10 chapters. And what we see in that section is a downward spiral from chapter two to the end of chapter 11. Everything is going like this. And then chapter 
12, verse one through three happens and God inserts himself into the story and he makes these promises to Abram whose name will become Abraham later. And the Bible calls these promises a covenant. God makes a covenant with him. And there begins to be this movement of hope. There begins to be this swing in the story that, that maybe even though things are really bad, that there is this piece of, of hope in, in what's happening. And so starting in two, chapter two, verse four, we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with God. And what we see is three things here in Eden, a pattern that we'll see developed in Genesis and throughout all of scripture. And it's the pattern of God's kingdom, his, his rule, his reign in the world. And so we have Adam and Eve and they are God's people. God's people is the first part of these promises. And then they're in God's place, right? They're in Eden and that's God's place. And they're under God's rule, the word of God, which... Adam and Eve get to hear directly from his voice, right? Because God walks with them in the garden and God tells them, big spider on my podium here. Uh, and God tells them in chapter two, verse 16 and 17, eat of any fruit, but not from the knowledge of good and evil or else you shall surely die. And so that's God's rule. You get all of this, just don't do this one thing. And man disobeys and the curse comes upon him. And when they hear God, they're ashamed because of their sin and they hide. See, our sin, it makes us awkward. Awkward towards God and awkward towards one another. It moves us away from God, away from being his people, away from his place, away from his rule. And, but God makes a way through, right? He covers them and he cares for them and they won't die immediately. But it's not just Adam and Eve. It gets worse with Adam's sons, right? Adam has two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain is angry and jealous of Abel. And God says to Cain in chapter four, six and seven, why are you angry? Why, why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And friends, what we find here is we all sin. Even when we see it right there. We don't do well. And Cain murders Abel. And it says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And we see already in just one generation, man moving away from God, moving away from his promises, moving away from his rule, moving away from being his people. And yet again, God makes a way and Adam has another son, Seth, through whom God will continue the line of humanity. And there's a touch of hope at the time of Seth's son, Enosh, it says that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so in this first section at the end, even though things have gone bad, we see this just this touch of hope where God is inserting himself in the story. But, but overall, things don't get, get better. And starting in chapter five, we have this generations of Adam to Noah. And it's what I like to call the generations, the generations of things keep getting worse, right? Thank you, Josie. I don't even know if you're laughing at me, but I'll take it. Um, 
And in chapter six, one and five, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the, Lord, of the land, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God decides to blot out man from all creation. But again, at the end of this section, we get a glimmer of hope. In chapter six, verse eight, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so again, God, inserting himself, gives a glimmer of hope when everything is going bad. Chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation, but the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. But God, chapter 6, 18 says, I will establish my covenant, my promises. Again, he, he makes a covenant with man, with you, Noah, and God will, says he'll make a way for safety for Noah and his family and for some of every kind of animal that exists. In verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded. Noah was God's person and Noah followed his rule. And God made a place for Noah or would make a place for Noah. This new earth that is created post-flood. In chapter eight, it starts with God remembering Noah. Noah's in the ark with his family and the world is it's covered, the earth is covered with water and it says that God remembered Noah. And friends, when you hear that word remembered in that kind of a context, I want you to understand, it's not like God forgot that Noah was on the, like, oh, I flooded the earth and I went to do something else and oh, crud, oh man, Noah's sitting in the ark, I forgot about him. Like, that's not what it's saying. That is covenant language and what it means when it says God remembered him what it's saying is God, God uh, what he's about to do has to do with the promises that God made to him. He's going to act on those promises. And that's what he does. And the waters go away and this new earth is created and, and Noah gets out of the ark and Noah worships God and God blesses Noah. And again, he commands him as he commanded Adam in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He is the new people for God. He is in, in the new place for God. He lives under God's new rule and, and is commanded. Just as God had once commanded Adam, he commands Noah. And God makes a covenant with Noah and his sons that never again will he destroy all flesh through a flood. And he sets this bow, a rainbow in the clouds as a sign. And indeed, the bow, rather than being pointed down, is pointed up, a sign of things to come. But immediately in the story, Noah finds himself drunk and naked and his son dishonors him, and we'll get into that story eventually. And, there, and Ham, his son, is cursed, just as Cain before him was cursed. The same issues of Adam and his sons are repeated in Noah and his sons, but there again is hope in Noah's son, Seth, and there's a promise that good will come out of his line. And so the story is moving, it's progressing towards something, yet man on his own is producing the same results. The same results, even after God resets everything. It leaves no room for doubt. It's not just Adam and Cain that were the problem. It's all of humanity. You might think, well, Goodness, if I was in Adam's place, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been smart enough. Friends, that's a pretty arrogant claim. 
It's a pretty arrogant claim, and that's what Genesis is trying to illustrate here, that, that the same thing that happened with Adam has happened with Noah. Mankind on his own will fail. The world in which Genesis was written and the world we live in now uh, both believe that through knowledge and technology, the world is progressing. If we can educate enough people, if we can get enough dollars in their pocket, then they'll be okay. People will do pretty much the right thing all the time, that if man could just reach his potential, then the world would get better. If we could just rearrange some systems and, and, and get it a little bit better, then, then, then the world would be okay. Mankind could manage it. And listen, many, many good things have come out of the advancements that we've made. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't make those advantage, advancements. I'm not sh- saying that we shouldn't uh, educate people or anything like that. But the problem, guys, it doesn't lie in our head and it doesn't lie in our hands and it doesn't lie in our wallets. The problem lies in our hearts. It always has. And as long as our hearts are corrupt, no matter what kind of advancements we make here or here or, or in our pocketbook, if our hearts are corrupt, we will use all of those things corruptly. And so we'll take a step forward here and take two steps back there. And that's what we see in Genesis chapters 3 through 11. That's what it's communicating unequivocally is that man on his own, even though he advances in technology, even though he advances in ability, he will only cause regression, never progression. And, and that regression is about to hit its peak, or rather I should say tower, right? Because we're at the part in the story, if you were in Sunday school, where that we call the Tower of Babel. Chapter 10 Things aren't going well. And we see these generations of of Ham, the people that that have come from Ham, this cursed son of Noah, who embodies those who are opposed to God. And it says in 1010 that this is the beginning of his kingdom. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And in chapter 11, verses one through nine, we get this history of the building of the city and the tower of Babel. Verse four, it says, come, They say to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. But you remember what God's command was, right? Be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. But the people of Babel say, no, we don't want to be dispersed over the earth. Let's stay right here. And so you have, in essence, a rebellion against God. We will be our own people, they say to themselves. We don't need God to be God's people. We'll make a name for ourselves, And we'll have our own place. We'll build this city with this tower. We don't need God's place. And we'll follow our own rules. We won't follow God's rules. And that's what we do as people, right? And so God confuses their language and and they left off building the city and, and there's a total reversal in the name the meaning of their name, right? Babel becomes Babel. They can't understand each other. The situation is not getting better. It's getting worse. It's a mess. There seems to be no hope. Humanity is not unified by one tongue or nation. Our sin continues to separate and degrade the situation. But there, there's one last genealogy in this ancient history. At the end of chapter 11, we, oftentimes we see these genealogies and we just see a bunch of names we don't understand or pronounce, like, right? And you're just like, uh, so-and-so begets so-and-so. I don't really know how to say this name. 
I don't know if, like, I do that. I don't know if you guys do that when you read through certain parts. But, but it's interesting, guys. It's interesting because, because there was a genealogy earlier of Adam to Noah. And Adam had three sons. And one was cursed. And one, it was said, a godly line would come out of. And there are 10 generations that happened from Adam to Noah. And then in this genealogy from Noah to Abram, there are 10 generations again. And Noah has three sons, one that's cursed and one with a godly line that's promised to come out of it. And I think what we see here is God giving us this little glimmer of hope, this direction that things are headed, that God revealed himself to Noah, that he made these covenant promises in order to reset his creation. And God is going to reveal himself to Abram as well and make with him a covenant, these covenant promises. But this time he's going to do it different. And we come here to the verses we read at the beginning, chapter 12, verse one, and the Lord reveals himself to Abram. And he says this, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, to, to my place that I will show you. Trust me, I have a place for you, and I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you and make your name great. You'll be my people, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you the families of the whole earth shall be blessed. And then in verse 7, he says to your offspring, I will give this land. And so God says, you'll be my people, you'll be under my rule, you'll have my, I'll, I'll give you a place a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. But this time, it's not man it's depending on. It's God. It's God's promises. God says, I will do this for you. Unlike, unlike those at the Tower who desired to make themselves great for their, for their glory outside of the glory of their creator, King, I will make you into a, play, a people whose glory will point back to my glory, God says. I will give you a place, the promised land, unlike those who want to make a city for themselves, and I will give your multiplied offspring a place to call home. It doesn't start with Abram, what he has done, or what he will do. It starts with God's promises. And Abram, Abraham's story runs through chapter 25 of Genesis, but none of these problems are going to be fulfilled in that time period. In fact, even though even at the end of Genesis, all of them are going to still be outstanding. But what's made clear is that all God's promises must first be received by faith alone, friends, before, before they can be received in any kind of substantive way. And as Abraham continues to live out his faith in tangible ways, and we'll see it as we go through the book of Genesis, we'll see how Abraham lives out his faith in tangible ways. God's promises actually get more and more clear. It's extremely vague in chapter 12. But as it goes along, it gets clear. Let me give you an example. This reality is immediately seen in Genesis 12, where Abram leaves Ur, the, fam the, the, the land of his family, his ancestors, and he has his nephew Lot with him and both their herds get so large, they become so wealthy, God blesses them that the land can't support both of them. And so they get to this point and, and Abram's standing there with his nephew Lot and he says, turns to Lot and he says, hey, 
We got two lands here. We got the land over here. We got the land over there. How about you choose? I'll give you choice. And you go one direction, you fill that, and I'll fill this one. But, but I'll, give you the, I'll give you the choice, Lot. And so Lot looks down and he sees that one land is better and he, of course, chooses that land. I mean, right? Who, who wouldn't, right? And so Lot goes that direction and it just so happens that Abram, the land that's left, is the land of Canaan, the land that was promised all the way back, all the way back with Shem. That Shem would take the land of Canaan from Ham all the way back with Noah's sons. And so Abram goes into that land and God sustains and blesses him there and tells him all of this land will be yours. You see, in chapter 12, God says, go to a land I will show you. In chapter 13, he says, this is the land. This is the land I will give you, but I'm not gonna give it to you yet. The promise isn't fulfilled, but Abraham is sustained in the land by appetizers of the promise, right? Foretastes of what will be for his offspring. Or in chapter 22, God promises that, that, that Abraham will have all of these offspring, yet, yet Sarah is old and Abraham is old and they don't even have a single child of their own. And despite their mistake of trying to fulfill God's promise by having Ishmael with Hagar, God still is faithful to his promises. And imagine the relief that they have when Isaac is finally born, but then God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? But Abraham believes in God's promises. And despite the obvious challenge that his obedience to that command would create for those promises being fulfilled, right? Wait, God, you said I would have all these offspring and I have one son that you finally gave me when I was 100 years old that I shouldn't have had anyways. And now you're telling me to sacrifice this child. How am I gonna have a bunch of offspring if I kill this kid? Yet Isaac is not only spared, but on the mountain, God provides a substitute sacrifice just as he will again one day. Even though Abraham has his own faults and sins, God keeps him moving towards the promises that God made, not because of how great Abraham is, but because God is God and he's the God who keeps his promises. And so we get to Abraham's son, Isaac. And we see that God's specific promises to Abraham are advanced through his direct descendants. In Genesis 26, God reiterates those promises to Isaac, telling him during the famine not to go down to Egypt, that he'll sustain him in the land. You see later, Isaac's son Jacob will go down to Egypt during a famine, but, but you can almost hear God saying to him, don't go down there yet. The time has not come yet. Sojourn here and I will bless you because I've got a plan. I've got a plan. See, God needed to send his grandson to Abraham or to, to Egypt first before they would go down. And so Isaac has two sons, unless you think God's choosing of Abraham had anything to do with the great qualities that God foresaw in him, we have the story of Jacob and Esau, two twins who are literally born in conflict, right? And the oldest should be the one that, that the line follows through Esau. But God chooses Jacob. And the whole story, the whole story is meant to show you that Jacob isn't such a great guy. That the whole story is meant to show you, to, to make you like Esau 
and not like Jacob, who is this weak, deceptive, conspiring younger brother. And yet Jacob illustrates what starts with deception can end in reconciliation, first with his brother Esau when he deceives Esau, and then with his father-in-law Laban, right? That what, de- that, that what starts with deception, God can end in reconciliation, and it's bracketed by these two intense encounters that Jacob has with God. And in one encounter, God gives Jacob a new name. I'm going to give you a new name because you're going to be my people, and he calls him Israel. And in another, God reiterates that name and he tells him, I'm giving you a new name. You'll be my people. I'm giving you a command, be fruitful and multiply. Again, God's rule. I'm giving you this land that I promised to Abraham, God's place. And so we come to Joseph, which is the the whole back half of of the story. And, And probably many of you, if you've been in church, you've heard Joseph's story a lot of times, but it's a story not only of faith, but a story of faithfulness, the action of faith in the midst of trials. And, and more importantly, the faithfulness of God to Joseph and the faithfulness of God to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Joseph. You see, Joseph's brothers are filled with jealousy and hatred. Sounds a lot like Cain, right? Again, it happens. And, and they sell Joseph into slavery and they tell Jacob that he was killed and Joseph ends, in, ends up in the house of this Egyptian officer, Potiphar. And it says that, that everything that Joseph does it works. And Joseph's faithful, even though he's been sold into slavery, he's faithful to his new slave owner and, he, and he's, de, he's uh, dependable. And his faithfulness isn't dependent on, on his circumstances. And we're told that the Lord is with Joseph and Joseph is successful until he's put in, in charge of all of Potiphar's household. And everything succeeds in his hands, we're told. But Potiphar's wife She's not such a great lady. And she tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph, again, is faithful to to Potiphar. And yet he ends up thrown in prison. And and, and yet again, Joseph, despite his circumstances, is faithful to do what God would want him to do. And and so much so that, that the prison keeper puts Joseph, a prisoner, in charge of all of the prison. And it says that the prison keeper doesn't have to worry about anything. Because Joseph takes care of everything. And again, it says that the Lord looks after him and makes everything that he does uh, succeed. And while he's there, there are two men who have dreams. One dreams of his death and the other dreams of being restored to his position. And, and Joseph interprets those dreams and it happens just like he says. And yet again, these men are unfaithful to Joseph and they fail to get him out of jail. And Joseph's there for two more years until Pharaoh has a dream and no one can interpret it. And in that moment, the cupbearer remembers, oh no, two years ago, this guy interpreted my dream and he got it right. And I was supposed to, I was supposed to talk to you, Pharaoh, and get him out, but I didn't. And, and, and he could interpret your dream, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. And so they pull Joseph out of the jail and he rightly interprets Pharaoh's dream. Not only interprets it, but gives him the solution to the problem. And Pharaoh says, you know what? You're the guy. If you can interpret that dream, then you can, and you can come up with a solution, then you can pull it off. And Joseph, again, is God makes him successful in everything that he does. And he's put as the, the second in command in all of Egypt. And he saves not only the Egyptian people, but he saves his own family who, who were without food to eat. And this time, in this famine, they come to Egypt 
And in a powerful encounter, Joseph and them, are res- they're restored. Repeating the pattern of his grandfather, Isaac, where deception becomes restoration. And that brings us to the very end of, of Genesis. As we see this, this path of man is created and man messes it up and things just continually get worse all the way to Genesis 12 and then God inserts himself and he makes these promises and then we kind of swing this other direction but things are still going bad and there's still evil that's happening but yet God is giving us these little glimmers of hope and then we get to the end and Joseph brings all of this whole thing full circle. When Jacob dies, when Jacob dies, Joseph's dad, his brothers are worried. Because they think the only reason Joseph hasn't killed us yet in revenge for selling him into slavery is because our dad wouldn't like it. And now our dad is dead and Joseph can do whatever he wants to us. And he's assuredly, he's going to kill us. He's going to wipe our entire families off the face of the earth. And they come to Joseph and Joseph wraps the entire book up like this. Chapter 50 Verses 19 and 20, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, here is why Genesis matters so much for us today. Because man, in our disobedience, we've failed. We've failed with Adam and those after him. We failed with Noah and his descendants and and it keeps getting worse and and you and I fail. We're rebel sinners. But God's covenant with Abraham was built, friends, not on our obedience, but on faith in God's promises. And God will keep his promises. And even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of problems, even in the midst of of injustice that, that Joseph experienced, his story shows God will keep his promises even through that. And so 2,000 years later, the offspring of Abraham comes into the world in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and he's put to death again what man intends for evil. God means for good that many people should be kept alive, but this time they're not kept alive for a few more years. This time they're kept alive for eternity through Jesus Christ. And not just the descendants of Abraham. But as Genesis 12, 3 says, people from the families of all nations. You see, the man that Adam failed to be, Jesus is. The tower to heaven that Babel couldn't be, Jesus is. The salvation Noah's ark didn't produce, Jesus is. The son of Abraham who was spared from sacrificing, Jesus is. The blessing to the families of all nations. Jesus is the suffering, faithful man. Joseph foreshadowed. Jesus is all of God's promises. Jesus is. Jesus is. God keeps his promises. And yet even as God's people, we still live in a world filled with evil. We deal with evil every day. We deal with evil in our own hearts. We're God's people living under God's rule, even if disobedient at times, awaiting God's land, our promised home, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will live under God's perfect rule 
with all of God's people throughout all generations. And when times are hard, when people deceive us, when we sin, when we're enslaved, when we're punished wrongly, when we try to do the right thing, but we're blamed anyways, no matter what happens, the book of Genesis helps us to hold on to one truth, that our sovereign creator kept his promises in Jesus and God keeps his promises to us. Let's pray. God, it's a lot in Genesis. And I think a lot that you want to show us and speak to us over the coming weeks, the coming months, God. Lord, I pray. I pray that we would walk away from Genesis week to week, understanding that you are the sovereign creator, that you are God, and that you are faithful to keep your promises, even if in this moment, things are not how they should be. You will do it. Lord, I pray that we would rest in not what we can do and what we can accomplish, but we would rest in faith in you. Thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen. So we, we come to that moment that the book of Genesis, it, it, it starts with this story, this narrative that, that runs through all of scripture. 66 books written by different people in different times over 1,500 years, and it tells one magnificent story. And, and the starting point is Genesis, and the climax is the cross. And Jesus tells us to remember that, that climactic moment when the promises that are made in Genesis 12 are fulfilled in him. We do that through communion. So if you'd have your communion cup, if you'd get it out, if there's communion in the back, if you forgot to grab one, you could go ahead and grab one. But I wanna say before we take communion that communion is for those who have put their faith in this God in Jesus Christ. And if you have not done that yet, I would, I would love for you to do that. But I would ask that until that happens, that you would not participate in communion because communion is for his disciples, for his followers specifically. But if you'd like to know more, if you have questions, I would love to chat with you or if someone invited you, chat with them. Jesus, on that last night with his disciples, he took the bread that was served. The bread of the Passover meal, the Passover meal that got the Israelites out of Egypt where they ended up. God said that in Genesis that they would be enslaved for 400 years. He took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body chosen or given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was all part of the plan from the beginning. And he took the cup and he, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And as we reflect on Christ's sacrifice, and I hope your attention is turned this morning especially to the reality that from the beginning, from the very, very beginning, God had a plan and it has not changed and he has a purpose and it has not changed and he's fulfilled it in Jesus Christ and he will finish it one day when Christ returns. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you that everything that we are reading in Genesis, even though it's thousands of years before you came, that you are the fulfillment of all of these things. Thank you for giving us your word that we can open and we can read and we can see all of these connect, connections between Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Jesus. pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to your word as we go through the book of Genesis to help us to understand what it says. Help me to understand so that I can communicate it well. I pray that we would allow it to change, change our lives. We can't change the world, God, but, but we know you can change us. We thank you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.